Well, grab your Bible, if you will, on this first Sunday of the new year, and uh, let's begin with final message in this series that we've been in this month, this past month, talking about God with us, Emmanuel, God with us. And um, speaking of New Year, and I mentioned it earlier that I would encourage you and challenge you to resolve that this year is going to be closer, a closer walk with Jesus than last year. I would also say if you have no walk with Jesus, obviously that's where you need to begin uh, in 2023 is Believing on Jesus through the gospel and let him change your life and then walking with him. But um, one of the things you can do to, to walk closer to the Lord is to read through the Bible annually. And so this morning on this first Sunday of the month, you have an opportunity to start fresh and start new and start right. And each year we offer a Bible reading plan so that you can read through the 66 books of the Bible in a year. And we've got a plan this year. And so there's little uh, cards that are in the foyer and on either side here that have that plan. It's through the YouVersion Bible app, and I would encourage you to get a copy of that and download it onto your phone or stream it, uh, however it works there. Uh, and then also, if you don't do that, we also have some printed copies of that um, Bible plan, that reading plan that you can use, check it off each day. And that, there's nothing, I believe, that will Deepen your understanding of God's Word and thus help you grow in the Word than to read the Bible strategically and systematically every single year through. Um, I've been doing it for 20, 21, 22 years now, and it's been, it's been great. So if you got your Bible there, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. That's where we're going to be this morning as we get started in this final message talking about God with us. Um, Anybody enjoy yesterday's college football games? I know, um, you know, NFL's big and all that stuff, but there's nothing like college football, especially bowl games that matter. And so yesterday, if you're a college football fanatic and you're watching the playoff games, both of those games had incredible uh, competitiveness and this back and forth. I don't know about you, but I was pulling from Michigan. My dad's from Michigan. I grew up watching Michigan football, even though I'm an Arkansas SEC guy. To the end, I will pull from Michigan against all of the Big Ten teams. And so I wanted to see Michigan against Georgia in the national championship, so I was pulling for them. And after that first drive, they started the game. It was catch-up for them. They were playing a comeback game, uh, kind of getting back into the groove, trying to catch up with where TCU was, and pulled within three points a couple of times, but just could not get over that hump and to take the lead and, and win the game. The Georgia game was back and forth. I mean, Ohio State was up 14 points, and then they came roaring back, and I went to bed at halftime. It was 21 to 21. I woke up this morning, and I saw that Georgia, spoiler word, if you, if you don't know the scores, I'm about to spoil it for you. Georgia pulled it out as Ohio State missed a last-second going-ahead type of field goal, and so they were able to hold on to go to the national championship next week from tomorrow. And it's just awesome stuff. We love comebacks, right? I mean, if you're a, if you're a sports fanatic, not just football, soccer, uh, basketball, baseball, we love the comeback story. We want the game to go to overtime. We want it to go into extra innings. We want a team to come from behind and kind of rally to make it interesting. As much as we may love sports, there's really nothing more boring than watching a blowout. So we don't want to see that. We want to see the underdog, unless it's our team getting beat, we want to see the underdog win. We want to see someone come from behind and make it a game, make it challenging. We love the comeback story. 
unless it's our team that loses in the end. But really, we like comeback stories in every facet of entertainment. Uh, think about this. Networks like HGTV, DYI, the Magnolia Network, all of these platforms have been built on this premise of showing something broken, fixed, and brought back to life. And so they'll go in and they'll do these major renovations, these home improvements, and, and, and offer this store, and you get to see this dilapidated house turn into literally a mansion. It's not just the home improvement networks that offer these type of stories. You ladies and the men who are willing to admit it this morning, who love to watch Hallmark and Great American Family, uh, the, the, the movies that are on those networks there, you're seeing a comeback story as well. And I don't mean any disrespect here. Uh, guys, you may concur with this, but every movie on those networks is the exact same with different characters, right? It's all the same plot. And so what you have is you've got a person, man or woman, who's left the big city, moved into a small town for some reason. There's something broken about that person. Maybe there's something broken about the other person they're going to meet. And so they kind of come together and they start this relationship off. And, and at the end, it's a comeback story. They're renewed. They're re rejuvenated. Life is wonderful. And the movie ends with everyone living happily ever after. It, it's a fairy tale that we just love to watch. Comebacks are amazing. Comebacks are inspiring. Because of that, we love them. I love them. Honestly, uh, I do make fun of Hallmark, and I make fun of the new Great American Family channel that now is my wife's favorite channel. But I got to admit this morning, a few weeks ago, I got sucked into one of those movies with her. We're going to bed. I'm laying there in the bed, and she's watching it. And and I just couldn't close my eyes. I was watching the plot that I've seen her watch 100,000 times unfold before my eyes. And I kept asking her questions like, who is he? What's he doing? What, you know, and, and all that stuff. Started out me making fun of it at the end. I'm like, this is awesome. I didn't cry, though. I'm not a big home improvement connoisseur, but I do love the show Fixer to Fabulous on HGTV. It's based out of where I'm from in Arkansas, so I love it from that standpoint. But I also love it because they do incredible things, taking this house that was, you know, just needs a lot of help, some love, some TLC, and, and they turn it into something beautiful and fresh, and it warms the heart. We've seen something like that here in our, on our own facility, our own campus this past year, a transformation where we hadn't done anything in like nearly 40 years. And today you sit in a room that's undergone a transformation that is warm and fresh. We love a comeback. Did you, did you know that as we think about a comeback, that that really is the meta-narrative of the Bible? That when you read the story of the Bible, you're reading a comeback story? You're seeing where everything that was beautiful and wonderful was, was turned, was cursed, was broken because of sin, and yet it's been revived. What was broken has been remade is what we read in the story. What was dead has been brought back to life. You see, in Jesus Christ, we have a comeback. He mounted our comeback. And so today, our Savior who cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Echoing the verse in Psalm 22, 1. He's the person who is the shepherd who leads us in what we see in Psalm 23 to our own comeback. I want you to hear these words from this famous psalm. King David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. King David here, as he pins these words, makes this statement to the Lord, says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's rejoicing in that truth. As we've discovered, in the garden, God walked with man until man no longer walked with God. And yet, all was not lost there. The relationship was broken, and God's presence with him was altered, and yet God continued in the storyline of Scripture to engage man in his sin. He pursued Adam and Eve there in the garden promised a Messiah, provided a covering for their sin, and his pursuit continued in the story. See, in Abraham, God created a people for himself. That people is known as Israel. And from this people, God raised up Moses to lead them and to give them laws and to teach them how to worship and to live. Through Moses, God provided the tabernacle. Later, it would become the temple where God's presence was to dwell among his people. Even when Israel was carried off into exile, and we've talked about how the Shekinah glory of God departed from the temple. We see that all was not lost. The glory comes back in the person of Jesus Christ. As we know from the New Testament, Jesus, after his resurrection, he ascended to the Father. He left, but what did he do? He promised another one will come. The Holy Spirit will come, and he will bear witness. He will teach you all truth. He will guide you. He will dwell with you as the church. As wonderful as the local church is, there's still more to the story of God's dwelling with mankind. And so this morning, as we think about and we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ over this Christmas season that we're culminating this morning, I want us to remember that dwelling with mankind has always been God's desire. It's always been his plan. It's always been what he is doing amongst his people. He's always stepping towards you. I want you to hear that. I've been making that statement for weeks now. But I hope it's catching on. As you start a new year this morning, I don't know what 2022 was like, and I don't know what 2023 will be like, but here's what I do know. God is stepping towards you. God wants to be in relationship with you. God wants to walk with you and for you to walk closely with him. And so we've seen Emmanuel in the garden, in the tabernacle, in the flesh, in the church. Today, we will see he is present and will be present in the new heavens and the new earth. There is a finality to his dwelling with man. Got your finger there, or your Bible's open to Revelation chapter 21. Join me as we read the first four verses of this chapter. John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This chapter is the second chapter before the end of this book. 
If you were to read through the book of Revelation, and if you were reading through our reading plan last year, you just finished it a few days ago, and as you're reading through the book of Revelation, what you notice is, is that everything is moving to this moment. But it's not just the book of Revelation that's moving to the moment that we just read about. The whole story of Scripture is moving to the moment, this finality of God's dwelling with man. It's a reconstruction of Eden that's taking place here. See, since Adam and Eve lost their place in Eden and sin reigned on earth, the divine plan of God has prepared for this moment when sin would be fully eradicated and the plan of God fully actualized. The goal of every stage of the apocalypse, as you read through the book of Revelation, from the earthly woes of the seven churches to the three outpourings of judgment to the destruction of the great prostitute to the final events of this age, all of them have been moving toward a new heaven and a new earth. Even the reigning of believers with Christ on earth during the millennium is, as Grant Osborne points out, merely a harbinger of the greater reality of the new Jerusalem. You see, as wonderful as the millennial reign of Christ will be, and we have time to get into that this morning, as great as that will be, it's still not the finality. There's another story. There's another part. See, it provides a foretaste of the far greater glory awaiting in the new heaven and the new earth. So if sin had not entered the world, we know that the first creation, Eden itself, would have sufficed. But since it is in bondage to corruption, according to what Paul says in Romans 8, because of sin, it has to be replaced. It must be replaced. So in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, we see that the earth and the sky fled from the presence of the Lord, and it found no resting place. What we're reading there is God is judging creation because of its corruption. It was destroyed for it to be recreated. In this new heaven and this new earth, the dichotomy that was present during the age of sin has been broken, and now the two are being reunited into an eternal order. God dwells with man and man with God. And we discover in this final scene a reconstitution, a reconstruction of the Garden of Eden. The way it was in the beginning, now it has been remade. All things are new. The divine plan of God is culminated in a restored creation that finalizes the hopes of God's people and it rewards them for faithfulness. So again, everything in the story of Scripture has been moving to this moment. Eve and Adam eat of the fruit. They are cursed. They're kicked out of the garden. Everything is broken and corrupted. We see all of that play out through the pages of Scripture. Jesus comes. Jesus offers himself as a redemption, a redemptive act there on the cross. His blood pays the penalty for sin. He's buried. He's resurrected. He ascends. The church is born. They're living out this new life with God dwelling in their midst, and yet that's still not the end. It's moving toward the new heaven and the new earth where everything is all new culmination of God's restored creation it finalizes the hopes of God's people rewards them for their faithfulness I love that that it rewards us for our faithfulness you see we're reminded that God as a restorer has always desired to dwell with man he's creator he's redeemer he is also the restorer I want us to look at this comeback in three parts this morning here's the first thing I want us to see in the new heaven and the new earth, God's dwelling will be beautiful and perfect. 
I heard someone say this morning out there in the foyer, man, it's a beautiful day. And I kind of sarcastically said, yeah, but it's kind of like spring. I kind of wish it was cold. See, we're never satisfied here on earth, right? Some of us are like, man, we want it cold. Some of us are like, we want it hot. Some of us are like, you know, I kind of wish the sun would go in behind the clouds. It's kind of hot. Others are like, no, I want it to be beaming down on me. We're never satisfied. Here's what I know about the new heavens, new heavens and new earth. We will be completely satisfied. It will be perfect. It will be beautiful. It will be everything we've ever desired. Look at verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I don't know about you, but I've never been at a wedding where I didn't see the bride being beautiful, looking superb, right? Everything that has led up to that moment of that wedding day has, has, has prepared her for that moment so that she is beautiful and she's adorned and she's ready for the groom. Days of preparation have led to that moment of walking down the aisle toward her groom. I remember Kara and I will celebrate 20 years in just a few weeks as a married couple. And so almost 20 years ago, we went through all of this, and we had a big wedding, and I was in Arkansas, and she was in Georgia, so it means I didn't have to do anything, basically, but show up to the wedding. Can I get an amen for that? <laughs> My wife, who hopefully is watching this right now, she's home with one of our daughters uh, who had a fever yesterday, uh, she would probably amen that and then give me a swift kick in the hind end because I didn't contribute a whole lot to that, but I was 700 miles away. That was my excuse, being in Arkansas. But we prepared for that moment. Better yet, she prepared for that moment. And when she walked down the aisle, good night, she was good looking. <laughs> Got a picture of her in her wedding dress on my desk. She's stunning. So John here tells us that New Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Everything is moved toward this moment. Such is the case for the people of God. They've been made beautiful. They've been made perfect to flawlessly image the Lord. That's where we will be as the bride of Christ. But not only is the bride beautiful on the wedding day, what we see here is, and what we know of weddings is that the venue is also exquisite. Every detail has been taken care of so that the place is perfect and it's ready. Such is the case for the new heaven and new earth. God has went through great details, great work, great uh, uh, trouble to make sure that the new heavens and new earth is just as it ought to be. The vision here that John receives is a fulfillment of what God has prophesied through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 65, 17 talks about there's going to be a day that God would make new heavens and a new earth. And this new earth is free of all of the evil because the old earth with its sea is gone. Now, I know some of you, you're beach people and you read that and you're like, man, I don't want the sea to be gone. What is what is John talking about? The sea in the book of Revelation talks about evil. It represents evil. And so when John says that when the new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem is coming down, the sea is gone, meaning all of the corruption that's been here is no more. That's what he's talking about. That it's free of that. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's wonderful. The city we read is adorned and comprised of gold and jewels. It has a high wall with 12 gates. And the city is laid out in a cube. Here's the dimensions. 1,500 feet long, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles high. Based on those measurements, the New Jerusalem has a cubic volume of 3,375,000,000 cubic miles. It is vast. It's vast. 
It's enough land, enough uh, space for all of us. It's going to rest on a recreated earth. See, throughout the Bible, the ultimate destiny of God's people has always been an earthly dwelling, an earthly destiny. We're not created of the earth and dwell on the earth just to go live somewhere else. No, everything's moving back to the earth. Now, this, con- this conflicted with what the Greeks and how they understood and viewed the universe. They saw it in two spheres. They saw the earthly and the spiritual. In this dualism, humanity lived on earth during life, but in the afterlife, they consisted only of a spiritual state fluttering around in eternity. Yet George Eldon Ladd says this, The Bible's perspective places a man on a redeemed earth, not in a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. This morning, I want you to understand that as we think about what's coming in the new heaven and the new earth, it is land and something underneath our feet. We're not sitting around on a cloud picking a harp, right? We're here on earth. We are made for this place. We will dwell with God in this place, and it will be beautiful, and it will be perfect. And so as John watches the new Jerusalem descend from heaven, he's captivated by the Shekinah glory radiating from it. His glory personifies the character of God, especially his splendor. If you were to look over, over in the letter verses of chapter 21, I'm not going to read them, but I'm going to point out some things. John describes the radiance of this new Jerusalem as jasper, clear as crystal. Jasper was often used to describe any opaque, precious stone back in the day. The idea here is not a crystal clear transparency, but that of brilliance and sparkle. Think of the glory of God radiating from this new Jerusalem. The stone very well could be a diamond of the greatest cut, color, and clarity. The wall, John tells us, is made of jasper, this diamond-like stone. The city, unlike Solomon's temple, is made of pure gold. See, Solomon constructed the temple of stone and cedar, and then he overlaid it with gold. But John tells us that the New Jerusalem will be solid gold. It will be a transparent golden city with a street of gold. It's transparent because even the beauty of this heavenly gold is insufficient to reflect God's glory. I want you to think about that. How can gold be transparent? I've I, honestly, I've never hold, held a golden bar or a bar of gold in my hand. Boy, I sure would like to have one of those. If y'all got one, send it my way. I just want to hold it. I don't want to put it in my safe. I promise that. Gold is solid. Gold, gold is not transparent, but in the New Jerusalem, we're told that the city will be made out of, made out of a transparent gold that lines the city. You see, it only can radiate through its transparency the incomparably greater glory of God himself. It's not so much that it's going to reflect the glory of God. No, it's got to be opaque and transparent so the glory of God shines out through the gold because God is more glorious than the gold is. Along with the gold and the jasper of the city and its wall, we're told that the 12 foundations will be adorned with all kinds of precious jewels. The 12 gates will each be made of a single pearl. The city will also have a mighty river lined with a fruit-bearing tree. That's interesting. Lined with a fruit-bearing tree. We see and we know that Eden was perfect. It was beautiful. But sin and its curses left it broken and left it in ruins. In the new Jerusalem, however... The exquisiteness and the beauty of Eden will be remade. It will be intensified, and it will be expanded beyond anything we could ever imagine. Even the details that I've laid out here this morning 
are hard for us to grasp. See, we, we don't know anything but what we see in front of us. The idea of Eden being beautiful and perfect, we really can't fathom what that looks like, even by reading the pages of Scripture, much less thinking about how it's going to be reconstructed in the end. And yet John tells us that it will be beautiful and perfect, and we trust that. It's going to radiate the beauty and the majesty of God. There's a second thing I want you to see in the new heaven and new earth. In the new heaven and new earth, God's dwelling will be physically present with man. He will physically be with you and I. This new earth, this new Jerusalem, it's a place. We need to understand that it's not an idea, it's not a thought, it's not a philosophy. It is a place, but it's also a people. In verse 2, John sees it coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. Its gates are inscribed with the 12 tribes of Israel. Its foundations are inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles. So the city symbolizes the people of God. Who are the people of God? It's everyone. Old Testament, New Testament, church age, tribulation. It's everyone who's named the name of Christ, who's put faith in him as Messiah. Those are the people of God. Those are the ones who will adorn and and gather there in the new Jerusalem. They will comprise the temple of God, the place of his presence. In verse 22 of this chapter, John explains that there is no temple in the city because the Lord God is the temple amid his people. And so we will be in the Lord, in his presence physically. The new Jerusalem will be on a recreated new earth as we've already laid out. It will be a new people of God living for all of eternity with the Lord in their midst. So this is a beautiful new Eden. Now, look at verse 3. John says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Look down at chapter 22, verse 3. He says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or of, of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. What's John doing here? Well, by framing these visions with the centrality of the divine throne and the beauty of the new earth, what John is saying is that everything the city means to the saints, that of abundant life, that of abundant provisions, that of complete healing, that of absolute security, all of those are made possible by the sovereign presence of God and the Lamb among his people. They have gates, but the gates are open. There are no lights, but they're light. There's light. I, uh, we have a dog, and um, like most dads, when our kids are like, we want a dog, we want a dog, we want a dog, and we finally give in to that, what we say to our kids is, if we get this dog, you're taking care of it, right? You're going to feed it, you're going to water it, you're going to take it out when he needs to go outside. And what happens about three hours after you get the dog? You as the dad are feeding, watering, bathing, taking the dog out, and now, because it gets dark at like 12 in the afternoon, I'm kidding. I like it getting dark at 5.15. Uh, it means I can go to bed earlier. Um, 
what happens is my, my daughter's like, Dad, it's, it's, it's dark outside. We're scared to go outside. So I'm like, what are you talking about? What's going to get you outside? Like the fox that runs outside? What's going to get you? Buzzards that are on the roost? Nothing's going to get you. And yet I'm taking the dog outside. So the idea of darkness causing fear in us, we understand, right? It causes fear in young kids. And yet in the New Jerusalem, there will be no lights, but there will be a light. The light will radiate from the presence of God. So as wonderful as this heaven on earth will be, and it's going to be exquisite, think about this. It's only heaven because God's presence is there. The greatest aspect of all of eternity's blessings is reflected in verse 4. They will see his face. Verse 3, I should say. They will see his face. Just as Adam and Eve once stood before God in Eden... We will one day in the new heaven and new earth, there in the new Jerusalem, we will stand in the physical presence of God. Now, you're probably asking yourself, now, before all of this happens and in the millennial reign, or those who have gone before the Lord, who are in heaven with him, are they not seeing the physical presence of God? I can't answer that for you this morning. I would say it's probably in a spiritual state there because it's not on earth. That would be my argument. But in the new heaven and new earth, we are told right here that there will be the physical presence of God. Of God. Now, as I say that, that's hard for me to understand because God himself is spirit, but he will be with us. I'm only taking it from what we see in, in the Garden of Eden there in Genesis 3, that God comes walking in the garden. It's anthropomorphic language. It's speaking of, uh, of a man walking. So God is walking in the garden. So I believe that in the new heaven and new earth, God will physically walk with us, be with us, dwell with us physically. There's a third thing I want you to see. In the new heaven and new earth, God's dwelling will be free of all the curses of sin. Verse 4, John says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, at this point, all sinners and rebels have been cast into the lake of fire. If you're walking, reading through the book of Revelation, chapter 20 is when those things are dealt with. There is a great white throne judgment that takes place, and everyone whose name is not written in the book of life is judged, and they have been cast into the lake of fire. They have previously been in hell, right? Now they're cast into the lake of fire. Along with them are the demons that have been tormenting the people that God's created. They're in the lake of fire. Satan, that old dragon, is in the lake of the fire. The false prophet is in the lake of fire. The antichrist is in the lake of fire. All of those things are in the lake of fire. But there's two more things that have been thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades. They're all in the lake of fire. So you get to chapter 21, and, and what John is unfolding for us is that in this new heaven, and this new earth, God's dwelling with us means that we're free from all of the curses of sin. Everything that is destroyed our lives and hurt our lives and, and worked against us in this life are no more. We're free from all of that. We're free from the entanglements and the entrapments. We're free from the curses that have come because of our sin. So in chapter 21, the only ones alive to enjoy this new earth will be the redeemed of the earth. Now, when I say alive, I'm not talking about that when the judgment takes place and those cast into the lake of fire, they're not burnt up into annihilation. They are living for an eternity in torment because they're, 
They've sinned an infinite sin against an infinite God. So they're not alive spiritually, but they're alive in the sense that they exist in a place of utter torment in the lake of fire. But those of us who placed our faith in Jesus, who have been redeemed of the earth, we will enjoy the presence of God free of all of the curses of sin. What does that mean? That means there's going to be no more tears of suffering. That's what it says in verse 4. There shall be, there, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Many of you this past year, you shed tears. You lost a loved one. You're diagnosed with a cancer or some sort of illness. You, you, you're going through a divorce and, and just the things that happen along with that. So you've cried many tears in 2022. In the new heaven and new earth, there will be no more tears, no mourning, no pain, no sorrow, none of the things that we have to deal with. All of the things that are cursed are gone. There will be no disease, no sickness. There will be no more funerals or doctor visits. There will be no more pathology reports. There will be no more destructive weather patterns or natural disasters. Hurricanes and wildfires will be a thing of the past. Those debilitating effects of sin... They're all part of the first earth with its corruption. But in the new earth, God's people will enjoy eternal blessings in an intensified and expanded Eden. That's the beauty we see. But it gets gooder. Look down at chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. That's a theological term, gooder. When you read the first five verses of chapter 22, there's a theme there. Here's the theme. Life. The theme of the Bible largely has been death, right? Death entered because of sin. Death is the judgment because of sin. We've dealt with that chapter after chapter after chapter with, with remnants, or I should say with, 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 with life sprinkled into it, right? There, there's pictures of the Messiah. There's pictures of life in the Messiah. But largely we've been dealing with this idea of death. But now we come to the final chapter of the scripture, and the theme of the first five verses is life. Life reigns supreme. Why is that? It's because the former earth has been marked by death because of our sin. And now due to the absence of evil and the presence of God, marking the new earth with life, life reigns. And these verses tell us that in this new earth, this new Jerusalem, there will be a river and a tree. See, in Genesis, the river flowed out of Eden. In the new earth, the river flows out of the throne of God. In the former earth, man was driven away from the tree of life. Why? I read it this morning as I was reading Genesis 3. Because if he took of that tree and ate, he would live. Yet he's cursed with death. So in the new earth and the new heavens, this new Jerusalem, there's a tree that we freely eat from. We were driven from it, but in the new heavens and new earth, we were invited to partake of it. This tree yields 12 kinds of fruit each month. That is amazing. The description of abundance and variety here emphasizes God's provision as always new and overly adequate. That's who our God is. He is good and he gives abundantly. The leaves from the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now, as we think about that, we're not to read into that that we need to be healed, right? If you were to go out this morning after worship and you had an accident and you cut yourself, you go to the doctor, you need that cut to be healed, right? You may need stitches. You might need ointment on it. What you need is your body to work over through the process over the next few days to bring healing to that wound. 
That's not what we're talking about here as we read Revelation chapter 22. Why is it? It's because death and everything associated are in the lake of fire. They're no more. So everything accursed is gone. New has come. So here what we have is imagery, imagery borrowed from the present state of affairs, carried over into the description of the eternal state. The healing leaves spoken of here indicate the complete absence of physical and spiritual want. You will want for nothing in the New Jerusalem. Robert Mounts puts it this way in... Uh, his commentary, he says, the life in the new earth will be one of abundance and perfection. Man, I'm telling you, in the new heaven and new earth, God's dwelling will be free of all of the curses of sin. That's the physical aspect. Here's another thing. You'll never have to worry about the temptations you're dealing with today. And they are many, right? They're everywhere. You, you can't turn the television on. You can't drive somewhere. You can't do anything without being bombarded with some sort of temptation that, that's feeding on or, or, or luring your flesh into a decision that will destroy your testimony in the name of Christ. No matter what it is, little or big, but that will be no more in the new heaven and new earth, free from all of those things. Are you excited about that? That was the weakest how late did you all stay up last night? I was in bed at 10 o'clock. <laughs> New Year's coming in no matter what, if I, whether or not I stay up. I, I, I don't understand why you stay up till midnight to say, woo, 2023. But each to his own. You're fine. It's fine. I watch football. I, I struggled watching football because, I mean, I'm ready to go to bed. My kids tell me I'm old all the time. I don't know. But the new heaven, new earth, man, it's going to be blessed with God's presence and free of everything that is sinful and evil, and the consequence of sinful and evil. That's a comeback, isn't it? And there's nothing like a comeback story. What we have in the, the, the canon of Scripture is this comeback story where we are the benefactors of the comeback. Right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were cursed of God because of our sin. We wanted nothing to do with the Lord. We're rebels, haters of God, Paul says in Romans 3. We are shaking our fists in the face of God, defying the one who created us. We deserve the hell the demons are in today. We deserve the lake of fire that they will be placed in one day. And yet God has been our comeback in his son, Jesus Christ. And everything is scripture has been leading to that moment. Comebacks are amazing and they are inspiring and we love them. In Revelation 21 and 22, as we've seen this morning, we discover the ultimate comeback story. The chapters here inform us that God is restored, has always desired to dwell with man, and we see it come to a climax. This desire is what makes Christmas so sweet. See, the new heaven and the new earth are not presented to provide inspiration for a personal remodel. We don't read these chapters and say, you know what, I need to try harder in my life. What we need to realize is there's nothing good in me, and I need to lean into Jesus as he's leaning into me. And there's nothing I can do to make my, my life better. There's nothing I can do outside of myself or inside myself or anything to, to help me get to where I need to be. I need God to come for me. And thankfully, that is exactly what he's done. You see the new heavens and the new earth. This passage we've been looking at pictures the finality of our comeback story in Jesus Christ. But we also have a reminder here that there's a choice to make. There's a choice to make. 
You see, as believers are pictured in these pages, these verses of entering this place of rest, that, that's what, the, that's what the, the life in Jesus is all about, resting in him. It is the eternal Sabbath. As it pictures this, what we realize is that that's exactly what we need. That that is what I long for in my life, and yet there's something that's hindering that in my life. It's my own sin. And so I need to make the choice to put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. It tells us here, verses here in chapter 21, that not everyone will enter this new Jerusalem. That there will be those who are cast into the lake of fire. Those will be the ones who've denied Christ. Those, those are the ones that the, the scripture lays out as the cowardly. Those who are name only in, as far as Christians. Yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. But your life looks nothing like Jesus. Your desires in life look nothing like Jesus. And so you're just a casual Christian. You're, you're just a cultural Christian. And the Bible tells us here that you won't enter this place. Only those who are pure. How are you pure? You're made pure through the blood of the Lamb. And if you're just a Christian in name only, if you're nominal in your faith, you will not be in the new heaven and new earth. Neither will be the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral. All of those, it says, will be cast away. Sorcerers and idolaters and liars will all follow them into the lake of fire, according to 21 verse 8. Entrance into the new earth comes through faith in Jesus Christ, naming him as Lord and Savior of your life. It comes through faith and repentance, believing the gospel message. When we do believe the gospel, something miraculous takes place. Something life-transforming takes place. That old sinful man is put aside, it's put to death, and a new man comes to life. And I love how, love how Paul Frames it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed. Behold, all things are new. Man, is that indicative of who you are today? Have you been made new in Jesus Christ? I'm not asking if you're perfect. That day hadn't come yet. I'm asking, has your life been made new in Jesus and you're walking in sanctification. Here's my prayer for us as a church in 2023. Is that this would be a, a year of sanctification for us. That we would be committed to walking closer and cleaner with the Lord. Uh, there's too many things in our life that are too close to the world things that you're reading, the things that you're watching, the things that you're listening to, the people you're hanging out with. We're too close to the line in American Christianity today. Honestly, I see it in my own life in so many ways. I see it in our church. I see it in our culture, our community. I want my life and I want Red Lane Baptist Church to look as close to what we see in the New Jerusalem as it possibly can be, this side of that. How does that happen? I've got to start stepping toward the Lord in faith because I know he's stepping toward me. Right? And so this morning, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can't do anything of what I just said. But you need to first come to know the Lord as Lord and Savior. 
If that's you this morning, if you need to make that decision, we're going to have a time of response. I'm going to invite you to come down. I'll pray with you. I'll listen to your story. I'll pass you off to someone else who can walk through the gospel with you and help you make the greatest decision you can make on the first Sunday of the new year. If you're a father of Jesus this morning and you, the thoughts of what God is going to give us in the end spur you on to live faithful today, I'm going to encourage you to say, Lord Jesus, my yes is on the table. I don't know how I'm going to walk this thing out, but I'm committed to doing that. I'm committed to bringing others into my space to help me walk in this newness, to walk close and to walk clean. That's what we need today. Amen? Man, God is with us. That ought to just be inspiring this morning. God is with us in our creation. God is with us in, in, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and, and how he's been stirring and moving and working through the storyline of Scripture. He's with us in the flesh. Jesus came to take on flesh, to pay the penalty for our sins. He's left us here still because God desires for all people to come to himself. So God is present in the church, but he's present also in the new heaven and the new earth, and we long for that day. Let's get ready for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the promise that we read in Scripture that there's coming a day that all sin will be put down. Father, we know and we understand that in Jesus and his crucifixion that he paid the penalty. He bore our sin in his body. He satisfied the wrath of the Father against sin. And yet, Lord, we also know that sin still is here. Sin is still present. We as those who are redeemed are awaiting the finality of our salvation. That's what we read about this morning. And Lord, in this intermediate state, as we're living in this state of ongoing sanctification, we pray this morning that you would help us to walk closer with you in this new year. We understand that you dwell with us. We understand that you're here with us. Father, I pray that we would understand that because you're with us, you see us. I pray that you'd help us to see us as we are as well. And not to be satisfied with casual Christianity. Lord, may we lean into it in a way that we've never done before. On the first day of the year, we would many times make resolutions about we're going to eat better, we're going to put aside certain things that aren't as healthy, we're going to exercise more, we're going to read more, and all of those things are good and, and wonderful, but they're not the best. The most important thing we could do today, the greatest resolution we could make today is I resolve to walk with Jesus. Help us to do that, Father, and to prepare ourselves for what awaits us. Lord, I pray this morning for that man sitting in this room, that woman, that teenager, maybe it's a child, that today the Holy Spirit is kind of knocking on their heart saying, you first need to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. Father, I understand that feeling. After all these years, I still know what that's like. And I pray this morning that you'd give them the faith and the boldness to respond in repentance and faith. God, even I pray this morning that they would have the boldness to come forward and say, Jesus is calling me to himself, and I want to answer that. Help us, Lord. 
in this time of response, on this first day of the year, may it not be business as usual here at Red Lane as we finish up a service. But God, may our hearts be open, our eyes attentive, and our ears listening to what the Spirit of God would say and lead us to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Trevor and Janelle are going to lead us in a song as we're singing this morning. This is our opportunity. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.